If I mention January 6th, 2021, I'm pretty sure I know what you're picturing. A fiery speech from Donald Trump at the Ellipse. A riot at the nation's capital. But Emily Feng, who reports on China for NPR, her January 6th, 2021, was about something very different. The rest of the world was paying attention to the Capitol attack, obviously. And of course, I was focusing on that, but I was also reporting on the simultaneous early morning arrests across Hong Kong of about 40 of the most representative, the most critical activists, politicians, journalists, professors who were active in Hong Kong civil society. In Hong Kong, more than 50 people have been arrested in a massive crackdown on the pro-democracy movement. They were detained in China. These arrests were a really big deal. Dozens of people got detained. Many still haven't been released. Some seemed to know the arrests were coming and had prepared to be scooped up. Some of the Hong Kong politicians live-streamed their own arrests on Facebook. This is former lawmaker Lam Chuk Ting being taken away. All of those arrested... Were these people you knew? Some of these people I'd interviewed, some of these people I'd seen on the streets of Hong Kong, they were the lawmakers. These were the people on television. Sometimes they were the journalists who were reporting on television or well-known professors and activists. So you saw them every day in Hong Kong news. And they were arrested basically all at once on the same day. These people were all detained under the authority of Hong Kong's national security law. It had just passed six months prior. When it did, there'd been warnings it was overly broad that the law could silence dissent. These arrests seemed to prove the point. To Emily, it was like watching Beijing tighten its grip in real time. In some ways, this was the classic playbook. What was shocking was to see something very familiar, to be honest, in mainland China, happening in Hong Kong, where I had gone on reporting trips five, six times a year normally, often to, to meet with people who would say things or were publishing books or making films that would be completely illegal in mainland China. And so to see this kind of sweep up of all of the major activists all at once was really, really surprising. Two years later, the people who were arrested in these raids are on trial. Is the outcome of this trial in any doubt? It is not. And that's also why many of the people who were arrested January 6th, almost two years ago, more than two years ago, have actually already pleaded guilty. About one third of the people who are arrested are, are still fighting those charges, but they're the minority. Today on the show, inside the trial that may be about to silence a generation of dissent in Hong Kong. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Let's go back a bit and just explain the context for these mass arrests two years back. The people who were detained, it was because of Hong Kong's national security law. I wonder if you can just start by explaining why this law was passed in the first place. So the roots of this law go back more than a decade to another political protest. Beijing had tried to ram through national security education in Hong Kong. They wanted to include a provision that would strengthen colonial, British colonial era laws about sedition and about treason to make them more in line with Chinese law now that Hong Kong was under Chinese governance. And they also wanted to introduce some national security patriotic education that was more in line with pledging loyalty to Beijing in the official curriculum of Hong Kong. Did the people of Hong Kong want that? And they didn't want that. So what they happened, what they did was they took to the streets, they protested because it's the only direct way that Hong Kong people have always under British colonial rule and under Chinese rule to voice their opinions. They don't have a direct vote to the chief executive and they don't completely directly elect their legislative members either. So the only direct way to show your political preferences is to march in the streets. And that's what they did this time, and they succeeded. Those national security proposals were shelved and they never happened. Fast forward to 2019, Beijing had this massive problem of dissent on their hands. Dissent in Hong Kong had been building for years by the time these latest protests broke out. Each time people took to the streets, they were protesting some new rule or regulation that stifled democratic norms. In 2019 and 2020, the outrage centered on a proposed law that would have allowed people accused of crimes to be extradited to mainland China. That bill was eventually withdrawn, but the protesters stayed in the streets, taking on an increasingly anti-government stance. On a Hong Kong side street, the police were still chasing the protesters. The officers jumping out of vans to tackle whoever they could catch. In some cases, violently. As those protests got more violent, and as it started attracting international attention, Beijing felt like they needed a kind of legal final solution to this issue of dissent once and for all, something that was so draconian, it would take out all of the major civil society leaders in this movement, and also discourage people from ever fomenting dissent themselves. And that was the national security law. China has passed controversial national security legislation for Hong Kong in response to the pro-democracy protests that started last year. The new law criminalizes subversion and collusion with foreign forces, and has sparked widespread concern that Beijing is trying to cement control of this semi-autonomous territory. And so they took a lot of language from that earlier proposal, but they made it much stronger. They allowed people who are charged under this new national security law to potentially be tried in mainland China, not in Hong Kong. They allowed Chinese judges rather than Hong Kong appointed judges to oversee these national security trials. They denied bail for anyone who was arrested on these charges. And they really broaden the definition of what could be considered a national security violation. And the details of this law were kept secret until after it passed, right? So it really just kind of slipped in, is my understanding. The national security law was kept really, really quiet until about the day before it was about to go up for vote in the Beijing rubber stamp parliament. And then it went into effect immediately in Hong Kong. You know, looking at the impact of this law, it it seems obviously ominous when it passed, but the United States has all kinds of like anti-terrorism laws. What made this law particularly alarming to you? 
It was how broadly the four big buckets of national security violations were, were left undefined, which basically meant that very, very minor protest activities, simply even just, for example, printing glory to Hong Kong on a t-shirt or a sign, a very, very common slogan associated with the protest, but not necessarily revolutionary or political in and of itself, even just using that slogan could be seen as a violation of the national security law. And so it was just so ambiguous that it could be used to sweep up anyone that Beijing didn't like at the moment that was really concerning. The second point is the national security law was written to be international. So someone not from Hong Kong writing about the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement for example, maybe asking for further sanctions on the Beijing government because of its clampdown in Hong Kong. That person writing outside of Hong Kong could also theoretically be prosecuted under the national security law. And so the reach of it was also quite expansive. Hmm. So how did local pro-democracy activists respond when this law was passed? They either left or they stayed and knew that they were going to face potential arrest under this law. And you saw basically every pro-democracy civil society group and political party voluntarily shut down in order to comply with this law and not risk their members being arrested underneath it. The activists who were eventually arrested on January 6th had a different plan. Because a few months after the new national security law passed, Hong Kong was scheduled to have legislative council elections. And these activists wondered, what would happen if they ran pro-democracy candidates? So they organized. They held their own unofficial primary, gaming out who would have popular support. And so their idea was that they were going to have an informal poll where people would come out and, and vote, but they weren't voting in a formal election. They were just voting to show what candidates they thought were going to be best in the real legislative elections that were about to be held later that year. The idea was all these different coalitions wanted the same thing, but they kept running candidates who would compete against each other. And so they really just needed to pick the few that would do the best. And that's what this informal poll was going to identify for them. And more than 600,000 people voted in this non-binding primary, right? So it, it was something that people really did, even though it wasn't official. They voted, and they voted despite this very vague threat this, that the Hong Kong security chief put out at the time saying, perhaps if you vote, you could be seen as partaking in a national security violation. But still 600,000 or so people came out and voted. Hmm. It sounds like this primary was immediately threatening to China's government, like before it even happened. So after it took place, what happened then? Well, the legislative elections were canceled. They were canceled twice for the reason of COVID. So those poll results were, they were interesting, but they were not necessarily useful. And it gave Beijing an excuse to then go in and arrest everyone who had been involved in organizing that poll. On some deep level, it probably also did terrify them because this was an organized effort to use the institutions of Hong Kong's uh, political system to try to change some of the policies from the inside out. This was different than people taking to the streets and tearing up sidewalks and smashing bank windows. But in some ways, this was this was more scary for China because it was institutional change. And they could see that it had some kind of grassroots support as well. Yeah. I mean, it took a few months for China to orchestrate these arrests. Was there ever a moment where the democracy protesters, the activists thought, oh, 
maybe like we're okay. Maybe these these legislative council elections have been canceled and, you know, folks are going to forget about this primary we held. No, I think that they knew that this was coming after them. And if it wasn't this charge, it would be another one. And again, many of the people who are standing trial have been arrested on other charges, not national security related, but protest related already. And so it's just been a death by it's been death by a thousand cuts. I mean, what what Beijing has done is they have just managed to quietly remove everyone with political influence through what appears to be completely legal means whether it's the national security law or other overlapping laws. After the break, who exactly is on trial? And how do you defend yourself against an authoritarian government? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This unofficial election in Hong Kong eventually led to the arrest of 47 people. So I asked Emily Fang to introduce me to a few of them. Most of them are facing a life sentence. Some of them were lawmakers, so they were part of the legislative council that does some of the day-to-day operations of the legal backbone of of the special autonomous region, as it's called. One of them, Gwyneth Ho, is a journalist. And she was extremely well known for covering pro-democracy movements earlier and protests and decided after witnessing and covering the stuff herself that she was going to be an activist herself, basically cross that line of journalistic objectivity and, and become part of the movement herself. And so she was extremely visible. Another person who was arrested was Benny Tai. You may think that you are, you are thinking freely, but actually you are not. So that's the, 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 the kind of uh, tricky part about freedom of thought. And we cannot wait until that time that we should now voice out this concern or this danger, this threat to Hong Kong people. He, up until about two years ago, was a very, very well-known and beloved professor at a Hong Kong university and was extremely active in formulating the political principles that formed the Umbrella Movement in 2014. That was a protest where people wanted to be able to directly elect the chief executive, you know, the top leader of Hong Kong, something that they thought they were promised when Hong Kong was given back to Chinese rule in 1997, and that just has never happened since. And then a figure who was also arrested and had been arrested multiple times before, by the way, so he was already in jail at this point, was Joshua Wong. I think this proposed law is a stepping stone for the future interference of eroding the 
political and economic freedom in Hong Kong, and it is even more evil than the extradition bill on last summer. This is, I think, one of the most recognizable faces of Hong Kong democracy and political reform. The super, super young student activist turned leader of basically any kind of dissent in Hong Kong, and and he was also nabbed in this sweep. All three of these prominent activists eventually pled guilty. Their representatives are barred from speaking with the press, but observers say the pressure on the accused is enormous. Very few of them are out on bail, and they've got a very slim chance of exoneration. In fact, only a handful of defendants have decided to actually go through with a trial. Only 16 people are contesting their charges, so that's about a third of the 47 who were arrested that day. But that means more than 30 people gave up. They they realized what they were up against, and they have pleaded guilty. Yeah. I was reading about how like one of the defendants, who was a former district official, he took the stand and he said sarcastically, like, I tried to commit subversion against the totalitarian regime, but I failed. I plead guilty, which is like, oof. I mean, I don't even know if you're <laughs> if it's a good idea for him to say that. But I mean, it said something that he did. You see people using what opportunity they have to make a political statement. And I think the first big example of this was during the oath swearing ceremonies for certain lawmakers. So you first saw this with a couple of young pro-democracy lawmakers in 2016. They had been elected, surprisingly, in Hong Kong to the Legislative Council. And so they took the oath-taking ceremony where they had to pledge allegiance to the Beijing government as part of taking office. They used that opportunity to to criticize, to speak out against Beijing. They either pronounced People's Republic of China differently or they used swear words uh, before the word China just to make a statement that they wanted to be lawmakers, they had been elected, but they didn't pledge loyalty to China. They were pledging loyalty to serving Hong Kong. Unfortunately, these people were invalidated. They were never able to take their seats. But again, that use of Whatever small opportunity you have these days to make a statement, um, you see people doing in the trial now. Yeah. It's interesting to me that this trial is taking place just a few months after protesters in mainland China really brought their government to task for the way the country's zero COVID policy was impacting their lives. Tonight, rare scenes of open discontent. Video showing protesters in Xinjiang fed up with China's zero COVID rules, chanting, end the lockdown. To you, who I know covers this region pretty deeply, I wonder what the difference is between that activism around COVID in mainland China and the activism by these folks in Hong Kong who are now on trial. So in China, these protests against onerous COVID controls in November were explicitly not anti-government, and they were explicitly anti-revolutionary. Protesters who were there made it very clear they were not against the Communist Party, with some major exceptions. People who did shout down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party, but they were a minority. The vast majority of people who showed up to national protests across basically every major city in the country in November were very clear that they didn't want to overthrow the government. They didn't need to see major reforms even. They just wanted COVID controls to go away. They wanted people to have more say in these COVID controls for them to be more humane and for the government to acknowledge the suffering and in some cases deaths that the zero COVID policies had caused. But again, it was never about overthrowing the government. 
In Hong Kong, activists were split. Some of them wanted to work within the system. Others, particularly by 2019, were talking about a major, in some ways, revolutionary independence movement to establish a real democracy in Hong Kong that was somehow separate from that of China. Now, this was a minority of people, but for the most part, the kinds of political reforms even the moderate activists in Hong Kong were proposing were quite significant. They wanted to directly vote for their chief executive. They wanted more power in the legislative council. They wanted an independent police inquiry into police brutality, allegedly, against protesters in 2019 and early 2020. And these are like substantial political and policy changes in contrast to the very limited demands that people in mainland China were asking for. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying the fight in Hong Kong is more existential for Beijing. It was existential for Hong Kong, and it it would have set a very, very scary precedent for Beijing. I wouldn't necessarily say it was existential, but it might have created a political slippery slope where if the Hong Kong people had succeeded in carving out more autonomy for themselves, that you might see other communities, for example, in Xinjiang or Tibet, saying, we want the same thing. It seems to me like the protest movement in Hong Kong has been remarkably resilient. I wonder what that resilience looks like now with so many of the people who led the protests over the last few years, facing trial, pleading guilty. How are people moving forward if they're interested in some kind of democratic change? They're moving abroad. So it's the Hong Kong diaspora who is carrying on this dialogue, this political consciousness, this identity. Hmm. They have mostly gone to the U.S. and also the U.K., um, but a lot of people have just simply moved abroad if they have the means to do so. And you see this in Taiwan as well, which at first welcomed a lot of Hong Kong political refugees, but unfortunately has made it really, really difficult for them to stay, particularly younger Hong Kongers who don't have uh, significant financial resources. And so many of them have been here for the last couple of years, but have just left because they don't see a future for themselves here. But in general, you do see people being very, very active about the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement now. And basically every place across North America and Europe, just not in Hong Kong. One of the important things it feels like to me that this trial is doing is putting muscle behind the Hong Kong national security law because a national security law, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference unless you enforce it. And like this trial is a way to prove how powerful it is. You know, the number of people arrested under the national security law has actually not been as high as many people feared. People feared that tens of thousands of people would get swept up for minor offenses. In reality, it's been only a couple hundred have been arrested under the national security law. And the reason for this is the punishments under the law are so draconian that you only have to arrest a few, some of the most prominent, influential people in Hong Kong society, to send a message to the rest to show them it's not worth continuing your dissent, at least not in Hong Kong. And it's worked. Emily Feng, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for such great questions. Emily Feng is NPR's Beijing correspondent. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to look into joining our membership program, Slate Plus. You can find out more and sign up at slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. 
We are getting a ton of support from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow. Hold up. 